one to another behold. And uh, just as a precursor, everything that Amy said last week can, can also be used this week. So she kind of stole my sermon. Had to redo it this week. But everything that she said is applicable to the behold that we're going to look at this morning. And the behold is behold how he loved him. And uh, I'm just going to read to you. As many of you know, I love the Passion Translation. And uh, I ordered it specially in this week to Nicholas Dismay that I bought another book. Uh, just to read fr- from John 11 to you this morning. Because instead of me just saying, behold how he loved him, I want to give you the context. And I want to give you the context in this beautiful poetry that, um, that the writer has written this John in. So just bear with me. Listen to the words. John chapter 11. Lazarus raised from the dead. In the village of Bethany, there was a man named Lazarus, Lazarus and his sisters, Miriam and Martha. Miriam was the one who would anoint Jesus' feet with costly perfume and dry his feet with her long hair. One day, Lazarus became very sick to the point of death. So his sister sent a message to Jesus. Lord, our brother Lazarus, the one you love, is very sick. Please come. When he heard this, he said, The sickness will not end in death for Lazarus, but will bring glory and praise to God. This will reveal the greatness of the Son of God by what takes place. Now, even though Jesus loved Miriam, Martha, and Lazarus, he remained where he was for two more days. Finally, on the third day, he said to the disciples, Come, it is time to go to Bethany. But teacher, they said to him, Do you really want to go back there? It was just a short time ago the people of Judea were going to stone you. Jesus replied, Are there not twelve hours of daylight in every day? You can go through a day without the fear of stumbling when you walk in the one who gives light to the world. But you will stumble when the light is not in you, for you will be walking in the dark. Then Jesus added, Lazarus, our friend, has just fallen asleep. It's time that I go and awaken him. We're in verse 12. When they heard this, the disciples replied, Lord, if he has just fallen asleep, then he'll get better. Jesus was speaking about Lazarus' death, but the disciples presumed he was talking about natural sleep. Then Jesus made it plain to them, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because now you have another opportunity to see who I am. So that you will learn to trust in me. Come, let's go and see him. So Thomas, nicknamed the twin, remarked to the other disciples, Let's go so that we can die with him. Now when they arrived in Bethany, which was only about two miles from Jerusalem, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Many friends of Miriam and Martha had come from, the, come from the region to console them over the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was approaching the village, she went out to meet him, but Miriam stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, My Lord, if only you had come sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that if you were to ask God for anything, he would do it for you. Jesus told her, Your brother will rise and live. She replied, Yes, I know he will rise with everyone else on the resurrection day. Martha! Jesus said, you don't have to wait until then. I am the resurrection and I am life eternal. Anyone who clings to me in faith, even though he dies, will live forever. And the one who lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Then Martha replied, yes, Lord, I do. I've always believed that you're the anointed one, the son of God who has come into the world for us. Then she left and hurried off to her sister Miriam and called her aside from all the mourners and whispered to her, he's here and he wants to speak with you. 
So when Miriam heard this, she quickly went off to find him, for Jesus was lingering outside the village at the same spot where Martha met him. Now when Miriam, Miriam's friends who were comforting her noticed how quickly she ran out of the house, they followed her, assuming she was going to the tomb of her brother to mourn. When Miriam finally found Jesus outside the village, she fell at his feet in tears and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus looked at Miriam and saw her weeping at his feet and all her friends who were with her grieving, he shuddered with emotion and was deeply moved with tenderness and compassion. He said to them, where did you bury him? Lord, come with us and we'll show you, they replied. The tears streamed down Jesus' face. Jesus wept. Seeing Jesus weep caused many of the mourners to say, look or behold how much he loved Lazarus. Yet others said, isn't this the one who opens blind eyes? Why didn't he do something to keep Lazarus from dying? Then Jesus, with intense emotion, came to the tomb, a cave with a stone placed over its entrance, and Jesus told them, roll away the stone. Then Martha said, but Lord, it's been four days since he died. By now his body is already decomposing. Jesus looked at her and said, didn't I tell you that if you will believe in me, you will see God unveil his power or his glory? So they rolled away the heavy stone and Jesus gazed into heaven and said, Father, thank you that you have heard my prayer. For you listen to every word I speak. Now so that these who stand here with me will believe that you have sent me to earth as your messenger. I will use the power that you have given me. Then with a loud voice Jesus shouted with authority. Lazarus come out of the tomb. Imagine that. Then in front of everyone Lazarus who had died four days earlier slowly hobbled out. Still in his grave clothes, tightly wrapped around his hands and feet. Can you imagine that? And covering and a cover over his face, Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him loose. From that day forward, many of those who had come to visit Miriam believed in him, for they had seen with their own eyes the amazing miracles. And I'll end on this. But a few went back to inform the Pharisees about what Jesus had done. I could nearly just finish there. Isn't it such an amazing reading of it but when we're reading through this I, I told Neil off when he first gave it to me because I realized that the behold that we're reading this morning is not actually in the, in the right context please Gareth don't judge me in my theology here this morning I'm going to try my best but it's not actually in the right context because he did love Lazarus but the people were responding to seeing Jesus cry. And because they seen him cry, they thought an earthly emotion. He must have loved, loved Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. My goodness, look how much he loved him. But there's so much more to the reason that Jesus was crying. And we're going to go into that a little bit this morning. There's a lot of emotion in this passage. And there's also, like all passages in the Bible, a lot of this is right, that is right, this is the right theology, this is the right theology. And so I don't really want to get into that. I just want to make you think this morning. For you to think about it yourself and come to your conclusion with you and the Holy Spirit guiding you. But his emotion in this passage could have been a mix of feelings. It could have been a response to the grief around him. It could have been a response to the death of Lazarus because, think about it, he was only human. He was human. He had emotion like you and me. It was maybe pointing to the fact that at the end I read there they're going to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus has just done. This would actually lead to the eventual death of Jesus. And so he knew, my goodness, if I raise him back to life, 
it means my life is going to be taken. It could have been the fact that the people around him just did not get it. They didn't get it. Do you not understand what's going on here? And maybe those tears were out of frustration, but I think they were out of an emotion of love, compassion. I think the tears were out of compassion for those around him because of his love. Do you know why you won the belt? Because, behold, God loves you, Kevin. Do you know why he gives us the little things we don't deserve? Behold, because he loves you. He loves you. And so he wants the best for you. And he wanted the best for these people. For Christ, everything was motivated by love and still is today. Now, forgive me, I have a lot of Brother Lawrence quotes this morning because I'm reading a a book of his. um, And it's called Practice in the Presence of God. I'd really recommend you to get it. But there's going to be a few quotes out of it this morning. But Brother Lawrence says this with regards to his motivation. That he always had been governed by love without selfish views, and that having resolved to make the love of God the end of all his actions, he had found reasons to be well satisfied with his methods. That he was pleased when he could take up a piece of straw from the ground for the love of God, seeking him only and nothing else, not even his gifts. He's the one that says that I I, I do the dishes for the glory of God. Even when I'm doing the dishes, even when I'm picking up rubbish, I do it all for the glory of God because of his love for me. And so in this passage, as I read through it, I felt like part of what people were doing, they were seeking his gifts and not him. They were seeking his hands and not his face. They were seeking what he was doing and what he carried and what he represented instead of actually him himself and the love that he had for them. And so as I prayed a bit more about this, I really felt that God was putting on my heart that They were not understanding his love, but they were lusting after him. And I want to go into that a wee bit more this morning because I'm guilty of it. And I really believe that we're living in a place, some of us, not all of us, and we have it in small contexts in our life probably, in a place of lust instead of love. And so in this passage, God's love is not in question. And too often in our lives, we question the love of God when really it's actually our love. It's actually our position. It's our thoughts. It's our desires that are wrong. It's never his. And so as children of God, like last week, we have to learn to be vulnerable and accept, right, you love me. So in light of that, how do I live my life? In light of that, how do I change my thinking? And so let's think about love versus lust. Do you know what lust is? Lust is a passionate desire that brings pleasure and delight. And so these people were running after God, running after Jesus, and they were seeing the amazing miracles. And throughout this passage, they're like, why have you not done this? You've done this before. Why are you not doing this? We're following you because we want to see this. And you know, a lot of people were following him because they genuinely wanted Jesus. But a lot of people followed him. A lot of people come to church because they just want to see the things of Jesus. They don't actually want to get involved. They don't actually want to touch it. They don't actually want to commit to it. And so there's so many of us that are lusting after the gifts, that are lusting after the things that a life with Jesus brings, but we're not willing to commit to the love. Love puts others first. Lust doesn't. Love creates space for relationship. Lust doesn't. Love cares about the the other's emotional position. Lust doesn't. Love commits to relationship. Lust doesn't. Love does not require instant gratification. Lust does. Love requires time and patience. Lust doesn't. 
And so this morning I realized, I wrote this down as I was reading through Hebrews, that in so many things in my life with God, I have settled for the shadow and the echo instead of the real thing. I'm content to see the shadow of things of God and the echoes of it coming back to me, but I want the real thing. And so there's things in my life this morning that I need to repent of that I have lusted after. Brother Lawrence says this again about regards to his relationship to God. In order to form a habit of conversing with God continually and referring all we do to him, we must at first apply to him with some diligence. But that after a little care, we should find his love inwardly excite us to it without any difficulty. Sometimes it takes a bit of work and effort to get into that place where love is no longer a chore but is an actual response and an overflow of where you're at. And sometimes we need to diligently apply ourselves to seeking the presence of God instead of living and running after the lusts of what God can give us. Love requires and demands more. So this morning, I want to repent of the things that I've lusted after. I want to repent of the things that I haven't understood why I'm even asking for them, Father. And do you know why? Because I, I have failed to ask the question, why do I want these things in my life? Why do I want to see people healed? Why do I want to be a better preacher? Why do I want to carry the Spirit of God in the lost and broken areas? And it all starts with the why. And the why this morning is because behold how I love you. And if we fail to start with understanding the love of God, then all the rest of it becomes lusts. And so God this morning is saying, if you understand how much I love you and I want you and I care for you, the rest of it becomes an absolute overflow. When you understand the why then the rest starts to come. And practically minded, the way I like to think, that's where clarity comes in, where discipline and consistency. Once I understand how much God loves me, I'm going to discipline myself in the good way because I want to center my life around him. And I'm going to be consistent with that. I'm not going to be something different next Monday because I had a bad Sunday. I'm not going to be different yesterday down today. Sometimes we are. We're up and down, but that's what grace is for. But I want to strive for consistency with my relationship with the Lord. And so St. Augustine says this, Seek as those who are going to find, and find as those who are going to go on seeking. No matter how much the Lord gives me, I'm going to seek you more and more because I know how much you love me. I met a guy um, on Friday in the tin house who lost his wife to cancer uh, about four years ago. And I've never met a man more in love with the Lord. And you know, he said this to me. We were talking about illustrations. And he said, you know, too many people that I meet, they treat Jesus as the spare wheel in their boot instead of the steering wheel at the center of the car with two hands on it. And I realized that in the lusting over the things, and I have lusted over the things of God that I want to do for him, when I haven't understood the real purpose of why I want to do them. And so this morning, is he your spare wheel? Or is he the steering wheel at the center driving the car? 
And I want to ask some questions this morning. What do I need to do with my time in response to the fact that he loves me? What do I need to do with prioritizing the presence in my life? Am I centered around him or am I centering him around me? In the same uh, passage, or sorry, in this passage, it's full of people trying to tell Jesus what to do. Has anybody ever had that? Are you, are you sure about this, God? I'm, I've been praying for this for weeks, for years, for months. Are you serious? I have not heard anything. Like, if you don't do something soon, God, you know what's going to happen. And it's been the same. It's the same today as it was in this passage. The people were trying to tell Jesus his methods. They were trying to tell Jesus what to do. And there were two key things in this that I picked out that are all to do with love and their trust and timing. And for us, I believe that if we understand and trust God and we trust him with our timing, our lives will be a lot different. We need to stop double-guessing God. And I heard this one a couple of months ago, and it hasn't stopped going over and over in my head. Because of double-guessing and, and, and doubting God, we create Ishmael's in our lives. Have you ever done that, where you're praying about something, but you get so fed up with praying, you do something yourself? That clearly wasn't led from the Lord. It maybe wasn't a bad idea, but it wasn't the best. It wasn't God's best for you. And so God is saying, if you only trust me this morning, if you behold how I love you, things can be a lot different. In verse 7, he says, come, it is time to go. So after two days, he says, right, disciples, it's time to go. And straight away, the disciples, in verse 8, but teacher, do you remember the last time you went there, they nearly stoned you to death. The more I read, the more I see how patient Jesus was. In verse 15, he says, Now is the opportune time for people to see who I am so they will learn to trust me. Do you not understand, guys? I could have went two days ago. I could have done the same thing as the Roman centurion and said, With my mouth be healed. But I didn't because there's a reason behind the things that I do. Because there's timing. There's trust. People are going to learn from what's going to happen here. Verse 25, it says, cling to me, trust me, have faith, behold, do you not understand how I love you? He meets Miriam in verse 32, and Miriam says this, this is a great slogan that we love to use, that I love to use, Lord, if only you had been there, if only you had been there. His response was, when he saw her weeping at his feet and he saw her friends, he shuddered with emotion. We think that Jesus didn't have emotions. Have you ever seen Neil on a Sunday morning? He was only human like Neil, like Kevin. I watched an advert a couple of weeks ago when I was crying. And so Jesus had emotion over things. Even though he knew the outcome. Even though sometimes you know you're being silly when you're watching those love movies like that notebook one. I haven't watched it again after the first time because I cried that much. And so we know that it's silly. I think Jesus knew, right, I know the outcome, but you know what? I feel where you're at. I know where you are right now. I know what you're going through. And I still want to come down and pull you up to where I am. If you will just trust me. If you will just rely on my timing. If you will just believe that I love you. Verse 34 then. He responds. He, I think he'd had enough at this point. 
If this was me, I'd be like, right, where did you bury him? Let's get on with this thing. But I think Jesus was still in the mode of compassion. He was like, where did you bury him? Because now is the time. Now is the time. Behold what's going to happen. Behold how I love you. Now is the time. Let's get on with this because there's a lesson that's going to be learned. And then in verse 37, in response to Jesus weeping, people said, isn't this the one who opened the eyes of the blind? Why is he not doing this? Do you know what I I realized as I was reading this? That a lot of time in my life, I trust sin more than I trust God. And what I mean by that, I mean that I believe in the power of sin over my life more than I believe in the promises and the goodness of God. I sit and I ponder and I think about the bad things I've done or the way I've behaved or the things I've said. Instead of trusting in the goodness of God and the grace of God and the faith of God, I'm moving on with things because I sit in the place where the devil wants me instead of looking up to where God wants me. And so no matter what we do, there's always going to be people that says, oh, do you not realize what he's doing? Oh, bah, humbug. Nally, no friends. I want to be positive for the kingdom. Not stupid with regard to I have sinned and I'm not going to go back to there. Brother Lawrence, he says, you know, I ponder my sin. I have, I have godly sorrow. I repent and I get on with it. That's, it's a bit more modern English than, than it is in this. But he doesn't linger on it because he knows who he is. He also said this, that simplicity is the key to divine assistance. If we can simply believe God, he's saying this over and over in John 11, if you would simply believe, if you would simply trust, wait do you see what I'm going to do for you? Wait do you see the breakthrough that comes? So much we overcomplicate things in our minds, we overcomplicate things as humans, when God is saying it is simple. You start with the why, I love you. And you keep it simple. Pete Craig puts it this way. As a teenager, I began to gather my friends to pray. The aim was to find out for ourselves whether Christianity was true. It was just a list of rules. If it was just a list of rules, there was much better things that we could all be doing with our time. Surely, we reasoned, you shouldn't be able to squeeze the creator of Tigers into a Volvo. If Christianity was to capture our hearts, it would have to be a big, booted, sharp-toothed, howling thing, a world of primary colours, wild-eyed adventures, angelic visitations, talking donkeys, pillars of fire, buildings shaking, crazy prophets, signs in the sky, supernatural things, demons screaming, the gnashing of teeth, money materialising, low-life heroes defying religious bigots, justice for the poor, mercy for the sinner, epiphanies that made you wonder if maybe God was a little bit crazy, screaming blues, vast Russian male voice choirs, and a even unfortunately, a bit of persecution along the way. If faith could be like that, then God could have us for the rest of our lives. You should read that book, by the way. Jesus is saying, if you just trust in me, if you believe in me, there's none of this boring Christianity that we've seen for centuries. Because I'm going to bring John 10.10 into real life. That life and fullness can be yours if you center your life around me. If you behold, ponder, think about how I love you. It's all summed up in that. When you grasp this as your motivation, that his love is your motivation, not results, not gifts, not power, not influence, then all of that becomes a reality. All of that becomes a reality. 
When we learn again, like God put in my heart a couple of weeks ago, when we learn to wonder at the things of God, that means astonishment, amazement. When we learn to wonder again, then we're going to be amazed. And so I want to ask you this morning again, what is it in your life you need to give over to God so that he can bring you into that place of wonder? What is it that you need a massive breakthrough in this morning that only God can come through, but you've been trying to create your own way out or your own thing to resolve it? Instead of simply thinking, behold how he loves me. Think about love for a minute. Some of you in here might remember, I'm still in love, but might remember when I first fell in love with Nicola. It was a very annoying time of life for those around us because I drove from Coleraine every day. Some nights I don't know how I got home. The car was in self-drive mode. I just wanted to see her every day. I wanted to text her every day. It made people sick, probably. Isn't that right, Neil? (laughs) But it changed... I I was skinny because it changed my appetite. It changed my thoughts. It changed my feelings. It changed what I pursued in life. It changed my desires. Love is something that has power to completely change a person. And do you know what happened? Ten years ago on Friday, I asked Nicola to marry me. And that came from a place of realizing, right, if I'm going to be serious about this relationship, it's going to take commitment. And it's going to take commitment for the rest of my life. It's going to mean that two are going to become one. It's going to mean that the old me in some way is going to disappear. And in Hebrew, the word disappear can also mean give birth. And so when I decided that day that I want to ask you to marry me, when you decided that day that you were going to ask Jesus into your life, it gave birth to something new. It gave birth to a new you with a new mind and a new heart and a new way of thinking. It meant commitment to God. It causes you to do silly things like Miriam with the jar of perfume that cost a year's wages. It causes you to do things that people will look on and go, my goodness, is he crazy? Well, he is a bit crazy, but mostly it's because he loves God. And so when people look at you, do they go in a good way? Are they crazy? Ronnie's taking on a castle. Many times have I heard, my goodness, how are you going to afford that? I don't know, but God's given it to us, so he's going to look after it. You're having four kids, how are you going to do that? I don't have a baldy notion, but God's going to look after it. And so there's these things in our lives that because, behold, he loves me, it does not shake me. When I was reading Job 2 this morning, it said, even though the Lord gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So even when I'm in a rocky, hard place, or when I feel like I'm sinking, or when the whole world is coming down on top of me, because my foundation is, behold how he loves me, I can reach up and say, it does not shake me, it does not bother me, because my eyes are firmly fixed on the one who loves me. And so the why this morning is, behold how he loves me. Have you got it in in your heads yet? Behold how he loves me. He's literally saying, are you willing to trust me with your life? Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, I want all of you, not just a bit. I want all of you. I am jealous for all of you. I wrote down beside it here, and this is practical as well, that I need to get back to the art of dating. I'm not in a soppy way, but I need to learn to get back to the art of dating my Heavenly Father and learning to spend the proper time. 
learning to do that five-course meal that I use in illustration all the time. Jesus in verse 42 in John 11 says this, I will use the power that you have given me. Out of the overflow of love comes all the things that you're desiring because they're in the right context, they're in the right place, they're in the right timing, they're in the right way. He says, God, I believe in the power you've given me. I know the timing is right. We, as Christians, are to have a different sense of time. And so practically this morning, I want to ask you, do you trust God? Do you really trust God? Do you trust in his promises? Do you trust in who he's made you now? Or are you still holding on to the things in the past that maybe still drag you down? Am I ready in light of his love to make the right simple choices in life? To say the right no's and to say the right yeses, To say the right hold on's and to make the right decisions to go forward? Am I ready to nurture habits that help me navigate seasons and situations in life? Because there are certain things that are okay for you, but they're not for me. And God, in light of, behold how you love me, what are the things that are going to bring me into that fullness in life? What are the habits? What are the choices? What are the mindsets? Places I go, things I do, people I spend time with, in light of, behold how you love me. Death in this story managed to take people's eyes off Jesus. It managed to distract them. It distracted them from the facts and it distracted them from the track record of Jesus. Are you sure, Jesus, if only you were here? Can you imagine the frustration in Jesus' head? Like, guys, you've been with me now for years. Have you not seen everything? Have you not heard everything? And then I realize that I'm, I'm identical. An old Japanese proverb says that we must have faith, or we must all have faith. We cannot see ahead alone. And so God this morning is saying, Behold how I love you. And when you understand that, the future is not what it used to be. The future is no longer what it used to be. And then the Bible, we have to bring that in. It says this in Hebrews 2, they had no sense of rest because they did not believe his promises. I can help you to look ahead. I can help you to see things differently, but you need to trust in me. The crowd was running around after Jesus looking for the next thing. And so this morning as I'm finishing, I'm definitely finishing. He was annoying me this week about that. What are you running after this morning? What are you running after? What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your energy on? Your resources? Think about just the last week or think about yesterday. How much time did you spend chasing the person that says to you, behold how I love you? And take that as practically for your wife as well, if you want, or your husband. How much time did you spend chasing his face, his presence? And how much time did you spend this week chasing his hands, the things he does? Let me finish with Hebrews 3, verse 7. It says this, talking about the people of Israel, the children of Israel. This is why the Holy Spirit says, If only you would listen to his voice this day. Don't make him angry by hardening your hearts. Like your ancestors did during the days of the rebellion, when they were tested in the wilderness. There your fathers tested me and tried my patience. Even though they saw my miracles for 40 years, they still 
doubted me. This ignited my anger with the generation. And I said to them, they wander in their hearts just like they do with their feet. And they refuse to learn my ways. My heart grieved over them. So I decreed they will never enter into the calming rest of my spirit. So search your hearts every day, my brothers and sisters. And make sure that none of you has evil or unbelief hidden within you. For it will lead you astray and make you unresponsive to the living God. This is a time to encourage each other to never be stubborn or hard-hearted by sin's deceitfulness. For we are mingled with the Messiah. If we will continue unshaken in this confident assurance from the beginning until the end. For again the scriptures say, if only today you would listen to his voice. Don't make him angry by hardening your hearts as you did in the wilderness. The same people who were delivered from bondage and brought out of Egypt by Moses were the ones who heard and still rebelled. They grieved God for 40 years by sinning in their unbelief until they dropped dead in the desert. So God swore an oath that they would never enter into his calming place of rest, all because they disobeyed him. It is clear that they could not enter into their inheritance because of their inability to believe God's promise. Are you in a place this morning where everything just seems absolutely crazy? And I'm not talking in the kingdom biblical way. I'm talking, I just cannot control this. I don't know what's happening. Everything around me is not our chaos. And God says here, they will not enter the calming rest of my spirit because they're wandering in their hearts. They don't believe that I love them. They don't believe the promises that I have for them. They've refused to witness the things that I'm doing in front of their eyes. And so this morning, that's me done. Neil, do you want to finish up? I've struggled all morning to know how we're going to finish this, and I believe it's the Lord's given Neil something. It's not very often I don't have words, but... Thanks, David. Uh, while David was speaking, I just was reminded of uh, of Helen Roosevelt. Helen Roosevelt passed away this week. Um, she was the most incredible lady. She served on the mission field for so many years. She went through all. I'm looking to scan in the room if there's any kids. She was she was tortured. She was raped. And she continued to serve the people in the Congo for many years. Came back home and was such a, a catalyst for missions all over the world. And uh, Metro Asia, I think she was in her 90s, anybody know? She was in her 90s. Wow, 95. An incredible story. I just happened to pick up one of her books last week, Digging Ditches. And I was thinking about her this morning because one of the things that I picked up from reading some of her story, reading a bit about her, is that Everything she did was because she knew how much she was loved, knew how much, knew how much she was favoured, knew how much she was cared for, knew that the father's affection was placed upon her. As I thought of her, I thought of even what Mom's statement while she shared about the shoeboxes. It was it was a going to the, these kids in across Eastern Europe because it was an overflow of the love that 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 she received or that the team had received. The scary thing for me in, in, in being part of 
church life being part of following Jesus is that when it doesn't come from that place that mum's talking about, when it doesn't come from that place that Helen Roosevelt talked about over and over again, then we end up, it's end, it ends up just out of duty. We go, to, we go to hand out shoeboxes because we think it's the thing that we should do. Helen Roosevelt goes on a mission trip to transform the lives of people in the Congo and right across uh, different parts of the of the world, of the 1040 window, and if it's from a place of duty, it's, it becomes a burden, it becomes wearisome. And you know, even, I'm not, I wasn't part of a shoebox team, I've never been in the Congo and faced what she's faced, but I relate to it to a certain extent, that anything that I do that doesn't come from a place of knowing that I'm loved, it just becomes another ritual, it just becomes another thing that is part of my schedule, is part of the thing that I do. And the thing about it, straight after that story that David's read this morning in John chapter 11 is John chapter 12, which David's already alluded to. And, it was, uh, and it, was, it was that woman who used to be unclean, possibly still living a life of promiscuity. She comes and has this encounter with Jesus, has this encounter, this tangible encounter with love, tangible mercy, tangible grace, and her, her all that she can do is to break open this jar of perfume, a year's worth of wages, they reckon. And she just she just spent it all. All this resource, all this devotion, all of this poured out at the feet of Jesus. Because she had this tangible experience of love and mercy that she all she could felt like she could do was to give it away. And people don't some people don't get that. I think it grieved Jesus that the ones that seemed to really fail to get this was the disciples. They've just seen, wow, behold, draw a bit closer. Pay attention to the love that he has for individuals, that he has for people. And whenever they see some woman in response to that love and that mercy, given everything, every resource, every bit of energy, every bit of affection, it's the disciples that don't seem to get it. And you know, in John chapter 13, the next story we're told is that Jesus has decided he's about to show them. And, and if, you, if it's, I'm not sure what it is in your translation, but in my translation in the NIV, it's along the lines of he is about to show them the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love he's about to show them. And he does what nobody would ever have expected. He takes off, he takes off his outer garments and he gets the tile and he begins to wash their feet. He begins to serve. And I love this season. I love this season he came. He came to serve, not to be served. And here in this moment he has shown the full extent of his love. And I love the verse in John chapter 13 verse 23. It says that, it says John, like this is John writing this about himself. He said, and Jesus reclined with the disciple that he loved. And I think there's some people that maybe wrestle a wee bit with that. How dare he? How dare he speak like that? Such such arrogance almost to think that, uh, such confidence that I'm the one that he loved. I think John finally got it. Jesus is trying to show it in John 11. He sees that I haven't got it in chapter 12 and then he says, I'm going to show them the full extent going to lay it all out now and they're going to know that I love them 
And it's why John had that confidence to say, I'm the one that he loved. And it's why in his closing remarks in, in 1 John chapter 4 and 5, please read those few chapters. They're not that, they won't take you very long. But I think John is trying to make a point as he finishes that letter. That letter, First John chapter 4, verse 16, says that, that my prayer is that you would know and rely on how much that God loves you. You would know, you would trust it, as David has said. You would know and rely. And it goes on and on in chapter 5, I think five or six times, he said that you would know that you have eternal life, that you would know that you're a son of God, that you would know how much you're loved. I think John wanted to be, that. that's what he wanted his life message to be. And how incredible it would be if that if we spoke in such a way. Forget that thing about our northern Irishness. It's sort of self-deprecating. We seem more comfortable with saying what what we're not more than what we are. And I, I'm, that's my prayer. That's my deep longing as, as David was speaking that, that we would have this experience. And it, for some it's going to cause a complete renewal of the mind, a transforming of how we think. And so as Paul leads us in, in one last song, uh, Judas way to work so you're on your own Paul um, that's my prayer I, I, I'm almost encouraging you that you would wrestle with that as, uh, as we pray that you would have that moment behold how he loves me have that moment that you would pay attention that you would pay attention that you would draw close know that you're, that you're loved